Lent is a time to withdraw from distractions and to go deeper with the king. So many of us have put Lent in a box. It's only for those who are ultra-religious. And I'm not into giving up certain things and trying to make myself holy. Well, I don't think that really is the purpose of Lent. Lent is a time of repentance so that you and I might hear and respond to our Lord better. Lent precedes the celebration of Easter. It is a grand time where we are so grateful for the life that Jesus displayed and offers to each one of us. So, during the time of Lent, which is, well, it started last Wednesday, and it will go all the way through Easter, if you'd like help for the journey, if you'd like encouragement, if you'd like ways for you to be able to connect with God differently, please let us know. But for now, let's pray. Let's pray. Almighty God, creator, sustainer, all-powerful Father, we gather here to worship, to celebrate you. We want to hear from you. Help us focus, Father. Take away the distractions, our never-ending to-do lists that just seem to plague us, Search our hearts. Forgive us our trespasses. Then, Father, you can, you can live in me. You can live in us. Then, Father, we can be your instrument. We can be a fragrance. Only then will I represent you well and experience your power. Only then will we be salt and light and treat others the way that would please you. We ask this morning for a work of your Spirit, a fresh wind that would sweep over us. We pray, Lord, you would inspire us and convict us today. We pray that you would change us through your word. Give us boldness, Father just like the first church. To be witnesses, though, in Fox Lake and Lake County and in all of Illinois and throughout the United States and into all the parts of our world. I pray that you would speak through your word and through me this morning. We pray for the church, Father, all those that are spread out all over, but, but especially those right in our area. We think of Chain of Lakes, and we think of Northbridge, and we think of Emmanuel. We ask that you would strengthen those believers and that you would empower them and encourage them to be witnesses. We pray for our church. We pray, dear God, that we would hear you and respond to you 
as you guide and direct us, as you lead us, that we would be the witnesses you want us to be. We love you, Lord. We do. And we know that we have an opportunity now to to hear from you. Please make that happen, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 120 gathered. Just days after Jesus had left, he had spent three years with so many of the disciples. He then spent another 40 days after his resurrection just going household to household, believer to believer, and reminding them of the mission that he had given them. And then he left. And his last instructions were, were wait, wait. So 120 went back to Jerusalem, and they waited one day. <laughs> Spirit didn't come. They waited two days. Hmm, what's with that spirit? I wonder if we'll recognize the spirit. And it went on three and four and five. Nine days, they're wondering. Maybe they misunderstood. Then on the tenth day, the Holy Spirit came. A thundering sound, flames of fire, and the Spirit took residence in every believer. These 120 were ignited, and they went out all throughout Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us that they told the good news that the Messiah had come, that Jesus came to die for their debt of sin and to bring them life, that he was Savior. What a message. And it transformed. The 242, or Acts 242, well, community was birthed. There was teaching, and there was fellowship, and there were meals enjoyed together, and prayer was a priority. But as we found a couple weeks ago, that there also was hypocrisy and dishonesty within the church. And those sins were judged. Then last week, if you're with us, thinking again, maybe they've gotten over the hump and now they could enjoy a little bit of peace, there was conflict. Conflict in the church. Conflict among believers. Conflict well, that needed to be resolved. And so the leadership got together and they resolved the issues. And the church kept advancing. I'm sure at this time they were feeling really good. Yes, we got through some crises. We're moving forward. Oh boy. Then another shock. Nobody saw this one coming. They knew they were getting some pushback. But something drastic happened. Our focus has been on a newly formed church. 
The power it had in its community and the leadership that were put there in order to help the church move forward. Our lengthy text is, well, Acts chapter 6, and you can start turning your Bibles there um, or your flat screens, but Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8, and we are going to go all the way through chapter 7 and into chapter 8 up to verse 3. This whole text focuses on Stephen. As we learned last week, he was one of the seven. Probably we'd call them deacons today. But he was chosen to do a special work within the church. Now normally, I I think most people don't read the last chapter of a book first. But I'm sure there are some right here today that are saying, you know what, I always read the last chapter, Rick. It kind of tells me if I want to read the book. Well, well, whatever, but we're going to do that this morning. And I hope I don't wreck it for you. But I think this will make sense to you in a moment. So let me summarize before fast-forwarding to the end of Stephen's story. Stephen a godly man, full of the Holy Spirit, walked with God and was chosen to be part of the leadership. We see that in the first part of chapter 6. Stephen, though, for some reason, was singled out by the Jewish religious leaders. He started to get picked on. It ended up being a trial. And he was unjustly accused and sentenced to death by stones. But we probably should say rocks. Rocks. Oh, now what is so amazing. I said we go to the back. Look at Acts chapter 7, verse 59. And you can follow along on the screen up there if you'd like. But this is unbelievable. He is getting rocks thrown at him at this moment. Verse 59. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Or Lord, I am coming home. Yeah. And he fell to his knees and shouted, Lord, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. I I, got to tell you this. I'm just going to let you know. I want this. I do. I'm not saying I want the stone part and the rock part. But you know, as I get older, what I desire more than anything is that I want to walk with you, God, so intimately that as I respond to people wherever I am, I respond just like you. Because normal people don't do this. We can get offended hardly at all and the fangs come out. Not so here, I, I know that when I walk with God, God 
chips away anything in my character, in my life, that doesn't reflect Jesus. So if I walk with God more and more and have more years to do it, the Lord has more of a chance to chip away all the things that don't bring himself glory. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this, All of us who have come to faith, all those who know Jesus, all those who are part of faith can see and reflect the glory of God or can mirror the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are being changed into His glorious image. Now I know this takes time and that God does the refining But if I look down the road at my last days, this is what I want. And I think if you get the picture clearly, I bet so many of you want the same thing. We would realistically say, hey, if I was put in that spot right now, that's not my reaction. And I get it. But just think if God gives you another year or another two years or another eight years or in some of your cases another 60 years or 70 years or 80 years and you walk with God every day, you listen and are obedient to his precious word, he chips away and chips away and chips away. How beautiful, how wonderful to spend time with an elderly gentleman or an elderly woman who has walked with God for a while. Oh, they're not grumpy. They're not critical. They're not old. You love spending time with them because they ooze Jesus. And you have a flesh and a blood example saying, yes, that's what I want to be like. Do they fail? Of course. But let's look at Stephen. I mean, what an inspiration. An ordinary person. That's what's so exciting to me. He wasn't some extraordinary person. He was a normal guy that was filled with the Spirit who walked with God. Now, Stephen was a man full of faith in God. We know that. One who yielded to the Spirit's control, which enabled him to be gracious toward others and manifest great spiritual power. Again, our desire, we don't want to just limp through life Stephen bore fruit. There was evidence that he walked with God. People didn't even doubt. Who gets stoned and graces the people who are throwing the rocks? God's spirit was active in Stephen's life because of his obedience. The benefits of walking obediently with God is grace and power. And let me say this, there is no other path to a virtuous character and to be spiritually influential in your life than the path that Stephen took. So let's dig in. Let's look at the work of God's grace in this ordinary guy 
who walked with God. First of all, Stephen was a gracious servant. Look at verse 8. Back to chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. It's a simple statement, but Stephen was out in the crowds. He was representing God. He was basically using his God-given gifts to serve others. I think one of the marks that you walk with God is that there is a natural bent to use your God-given gifts to help others on the journey. It could be within these walls. It could be outside these walls. It could be anywhere. But what's exciting is, is that Stephen was serving. Now the second thing, which again might not be that awestruck to you, but as we continue to look at his life, it's going to get more astounding. Look at verse 9. But before I read it, what I will say is this. Not only was he a gracious servant, he also was a gracious debater. Debater. Oh, let's, let's read this. Starting in verse 9. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were the Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Celsia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the crowd, the people, the elders, and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen, and they brought him before the high council. That's the Sanhedrin. The lying witnesses said, This man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. Now, let me try to put this in perspective. Synagogues were all around, and most historians will put probably between 400 and 450 synagogues just in the city of Um, Jerusalem at this time. The normal practice, especially for the new believers, and you'll see Paul do it, you'll see many of them, they would go to a town, they would go to the synagogue, and they would begin to preach. It was kind of normal. And so what was happening, these early believers would go to the synagogue. And my guess is they would begin to teach or talk to them about the Messiah. It was a natural thing because that's what they were doing. Maybe someone came out and they, oh, they're kind of commenting, wasn't that a great burnt sacrifice? Or why was... All of a sudden, there might be a discussion. Hey, you know what? 
just want you to know, I'm not sure you understand, but Jesus, the Messiah, he came. He's here. It changed everything for my life. At that moment, any Orthodox Jew would probably go one of two directions, either get really ticked or very interested. Now, the news is already spreading around, but the truth is, is that I think Stephen was talking about Jesus. That's all. People were starting to listen. People were getting a little bit upset, but Jesus was somebody that came and someone that changed lives and someone that transformed their actions. And Stephen was just telling about what Jesus did to him and what Jesus does for others. There's already thousands of people all over Jerusalem that are, that are of faith. Just, I bet everybody knew somebody as this kind of revival happened. But the debate was birthed. Isn't that interesting? They could talk civilly. It doesn't give us much detail other than Stephen won. Stephen was filled with the Spirit. He was able to talk with those who opposed the message of Jesus, and he literally won. So they went to a different strategy. Let's get rid of them. Can't win, so let's try to wipe him out. My question is this, especially in today's culture, we do love the debate And again, as you look over even this last year, all the different things that we love to make sure that people knew that we had the right answer. And some of you did. You did. But what's so very cool is that Stephen debated about something that was important. And he wasn't, according to the scriptures, turned off by the debate. He was turned off by the truth. I wonder how many of us are gracious debaters. Because I'm not so sure anyone will ever listen to the message of hope unless we are. Third thing I saw is that Stephen had a gracious look during what I'm going to call the not fair or true part of his life. I'm just going to call it a God glow. All right? I I just am. In other words, all of a sudden, and we just read this, is that there are a bunch of lies being spread. They're trying to demean Peter, his authority, his reputation. And again, my natural tendency would get a little riled up, right? Maybe get a little higher. Uh, maybe go for the juggler. Make sure they know how wrong they are. Look at verse 15. This should just blow you away. At this point, all the accusations are flying. At this point, things are against Stephen. Everyone, everyone Everyone in the high council stared at Stephen. I I just want you to, to know this. They couldn't believe how he was responding. They knew how lethal they were. They knew how caustic their words were. They're looking at Stephen. 
I don't even know if he's kind of just taking a sip of coffee. I don't know if he's just kind of sitting back just a little bit. But they're staring. This guy is not responding right. What is wrong with him? They're staring because his face became as bright as an angel's. Now, I don't know what that is. No one knows what that is except there was some kind of glow. Something that was different. Was there a smile? Was there a calmness? Did his eyes dance? He wasn't flustered as people were attacking him, which all of us might have been. But because it was filled with the Holy Spirit, they couldn't take their eyes off of him. Stephen was in such communion with God that it showed. Stephen, who was spirit-filled, and we're going to keep saying this, displayed wisdom and faith and grace and power so that his face shone. I'll tell you, I have to turn to a passage in Exodus. This is so... Well, this story just reminded immediately of what happened to Moses. So back in Exodus chapter 34, let me give you just a very, very quick background. But this story, again, is so amazing. This happened at a tough time in Israel's history. Moses, again, had just... um, become their leader. They've walked through the Red Sea. They were being prepared to go into the promised land. God was giving them the covenant. God was giving them the messages. Moses was the person. Moses at this time was a good friend of God. He would be spending time with God. He heard from God. He knew God. He loved God. And he was God's spokesman. Well, as many of you know the story... There were a couple 40-day visits that Moses had with God at this time, from Exodus 19 to about Exodus 34. And Moses was loving it. He was basking in the presence of God 40 days. And again, most of us are like, 40 days? Like, what would I talk to God about in 40 days? Like, 40 days? No iPad, no phone. 40 days, really? 40 days. With who? God. Hey, God. How you doing? Okay, I'm done. There, there was something. What did they talk about? How did they connect? How was Moses encouraged? He just loved it. And after his first 40-day visit, he comes down, and the Israelites in chapter 32 have just gone ballistic. They have just committed all kinds of sin. They were worshiping idols. Moses lost it, threw down the tablets, and God punished Israel. Well, just a few chapters later, God said, come on back up. Spend another 40 days with me. We're going to do another couple tablets. So that's what Moses did. Again, he loved this whole God thing. So he goes up the mountain. He spends 40 days with God. That alone should inspire you. How cool is that? And then what happened is this. Is that he came down 
with two new tablets. This is the story right here. That's what's on the screen. Chapter 34, starting at verse 29. When Moses came down, second time, just got through spending 40 days, okay, carrying the two tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. He wasn't aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. He'd just been with God. So when Aaron and the people of Israel saw the radiance, the glow of Moses' face, they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called out to them and asked Aaron and all the leaders of the community to come over, and he talked with them. Then all the people of Israel approached him, and Moses gave them all the instructions the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking with them, he covered his face with a veil. Whenever anybody went into the tent of meeting, that was his special spot, to speak with the Lord, he would remove the veil until he came out again. Then he would give the people whatever his instructions the Lord had given him. And the people of Israel would see the radiant glow of his face so that he would put a veil over his face until he returned to speak with God by himself. Now again, we can, we can look at this, all right? You know, like I, I don't think that still happens today. What I'm saying is this, is we spend time with the Almighty, we sit at his feet. We develop that intimacy. We begin to look a little bit more like him every day, and he chips away those things. And we begin to have what you would call a God glow. Remember, this happened quite fast for Stephen. But there is countenance that happens when you spend time with your father. How cool. How amazing, how wonderful. Stephen had it. Moses had it a long time ago, but Stephen had it. Let's see what happens with Stephen. The next thing we find out, Stephen was gracious in proclamation. Now, actually, this text, and we are not going to read that whole text, but I want to encourage you to read it. It starts at verse 1, goes through verse 57. His words are so worth reading. It's a message. It is what, well, actually, Stephen's last message is we're going to find out. But I'd like to just read, if I could, the first two verses to give you just a little bit of a taste. So chapter 7, first two verses. So they're seeing his glow He's standing before the high priest and all these really important religious people. Chapter 7. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these accusations true, Mr. Stephen? Verse 2. This was Stephen's reply. Not caustic, not creepy, not arrogant, not entitled. Actually, very kind. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. And from that moment on, he goes verse after verse after verse and tells them all about God's faithfulness, God's love, God's promises, how God rescues, and how God judges sin. I just want to tell you about God. 
I know you guys are all the religious guys. I know you're the ones that have all the books memorized. I, I know you guys are the ones who've gone to seminary, but I got to just tell you about my God. My God is so amazing. And he goes through this history. And what I want to say is this. He comes to verse 51. And if you would turn your Bibles there, chapter 7, verse 51. So he not only used history to show God's faithfulness, he used truth to bring about conviction. Now let me say this. Sometimes grace means sharing hard truths. There may be times when you just plain love people. But there are times that you share truth that is hard to hear. In fact, sometimes grace means sharing hard truth. Well, say, Rick, when do you know how to? Well, the cool thing is, there's no book on this. It's because Stephen was walking with God and was being prompted by the Holy Spirit, and he knew when to say what to say. But look at this. He did not pull any punches, folks. Chapter 7, starting at verse 51, after he tells all about God's grace, God's love, God's rescuing, then he says this. You stubborn people. Now, I'm pretty sure at this moment, maybe things got tense, okay? (laughs) You are heathen at the heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones that predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law. And even though you received it from the hands of angels. Take a deep breath, Stephen. Take a deep breath. And look at the response. The Jewish leaders. For one thing, they, they weren't used to this. They were infuriated by Stephen's accusation. They shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, circle that if you do that kind of stuff in your Bible, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right side. Now now look at this next part. You talk about childish behavior, if, if nothing else, but verse 57. They put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, now, again, this is pretty serious, I get it, but, but it's pretty hilarious, too. All these robed, turbaned men, holy men, men that, you know, sh- just are known for their piety. They're running around. I'm not listening, I'm not listening. Who's that remind you of? Oh, not at all, a three or four-year-old. 
running around the house. I'm not going to listen to you, Mom. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm okay. <laughs> it's a bad choice. And there are ramifications. But here, grown religious men. So we, we can't handle this anymore. You know, sometimes the guilty repent when confronted with sin. But more often, they respond with rage. Now, hopefully, and I just want to say this, you're in a relationship with someone or with a few where when this happens, you can respond in brokenness. Hopefully, you have relationships where people are walking with you on this journey. And we get blind spots. And maybe there's a blind spot, and maybe that person brings it up to you. One who walks with God receives it. They have to ask God, is it true? But if it is, there's repentance. And there's apologies. And there's restoration. But if you want to enrage the heart of a religious person or a person not walking with God, talk about their sin. Wow. Next point. Stephen was gracious in death. And like I said, we started off with these verses. And just so you understand, maybe you're newer to the scriptures, you know, understand this stoning. I mean, today we have a little different definition of getting stoned than a few years back, all right? So what that literally means is that there would be a group of people that would take large rocks. I mean, yes, you'd throw some of them, but eventually you'd pour them on and you'd pile them on and pile them on. And most of the time, if you were lucky, you'd get hit in the head and become unconscious and, and then die. But many times you didn't. They placed them on you so that your diaphragm couldn't expand and you would literally suffocate is what would happen eventually. It was crude. It was gross. But it was the traditional form of slow execution in Israel. Stoning is, by its very nature, a communal form of capital punishment because no one can be assigned the blame or the credit for dealing the death blow. The community did it. Now, Stephen saw past the excruciating pain and saw that it was temporary. During his last agonizing moments, Stephen responded to his tormentors just as Jesus responded to his on the cross. Remember, the world, those that don't have faith, those that aren't part of God's family, they will resent and not support if you walk with God. Now, now let me share why. I, I think some of us have unrealistic expectations if we think the school or the neighborhood or the workplace is going to rejoice because there is a Jesus follower that works there. 
People will oppose you as they learn of your obedience to God and of your faith in the Almighty. So why do we so often expect to be applauded or respected or at least politely politely disagreed with when it comes to our countercultural Christian convictions? Now, this would be a great time for me to go through some of the things that our culture thinks is okay and God says it's not. But that's not the time for this right now. What I want to do is focus again on the Spirit's leading. And we need the Spirit, each one of us. We need the Spirit's leading to help us love people but hate a sin or the sin that totally offends God. You know, it's so cool. If we all, if I would become more like Jesus, my reputation would be more like, hey, wager hangs out with sinners, publicans, and prostitutes. And yet, he is a holy man of God. Somehow Jesus listened to the Spirit and knew how to love great sinners and lesser sinners, but still was holy. There were times he was very forceful and other times so compassionate and merciful. What was right? When was right? How do we do it? We walk with God. That's what we do. But we have to understand, even as we enter these next days and weeks and months and years, I don't think it's going to be easier to be a God-fearer. Let me remind you what Paul says while he's in prison, writing to the church at Philippi. Chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. For we are in this struggle together. You've seen my struggle in the past and know that I'm in the midst of it. You know, there's a powerful epilogue in chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 3. Saul was one of the witnesses and agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution started that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them in prison. In the midst of this turmoil, devout men came, buried, and mourned Stephen's death. I can imagine that early church mourning Stephen's death. What a leader! What a godly man. And and God, what's the deal? How are we going to move forward? We needed his leadership. 
The scriptures say a great wave of persecution began that day. Believers were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. We're introduced to Saul, which again we'll come back to in chapter 9. He soon becomes Paul, the apostle. And Saul, the creepy Saul, was going everywhere, trying to destroy the church, going house to house, dragging people to prison. You know, God is teaching us so much from this text today. And let me try to wrap this up. Stephen was a key figure in the early church. But he is proof that the impact of a man's life and ministry has nothing necessarily to do with the length of it. His ministry, though brief, was essential to God's plan for world evangelism. We didn't get it. They didn't get it. But he showed that the efforts of one courageous, spirit-filled person, though of short duration, can have far-reaching effects. The scriptures say at this moment, these few texts that talk about Stephen, but they mention that he was full of the Spirit four times. Dr. Luke did not want us to miss it. There isn't any way that we can be the person that God wants us to be. There isn't any way that we can chip away the things in our life by ourselves. It is the Spirit who works in us. And i got to be honest. Reading this segment of Scripture to me is like standing on hallowed ground before a fallen hero's grave. I I realize that this is exactly what Jesus predicted for his followers. But it's hard to read about it. This tragedy established a pattern that would define Christians and the church for centuries to come. God's plan was for Jerusalem but also for Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the world. Little did Stephen or the church know that his stoning would become a defining moment as the church began their second stage of the Lord's plan. It has been said that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. The Sanhedrin wanted to wipe out the message. Those religious people, they really wanted to stamp out the church. But all they did was literally force it to go into all the world. Far from exterminating Christianity, the fury of the Sanhedrin scattered the disciples of the Messiah. Instead of stifling the message of salvation, persecution dispersed the good news like pollen in the wind into Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I guess I ask, we want to be comfortable. 
<laughs> we don't want to have debates with people. We get uncomfortable when, when folks talk about Jesus. But maybe, maybe God is allowing some of the things that are happening today to grow his flock and his church. You see, when danger rises up against righteousness, the Lord offers courage, not necessarily escape. The task is unfinished. It is. Jesus told those first disciples, go make disciples. Go spread the word. Go share the good news of the gospel. The adventure continues for us. And next week, as we focus on Acts chapter 8, exciting passage where God gives good news to a very despised group, at least culturally, the Samaritans. I'm glad you're here. I pray that you are encouraged, that you're inspired and convicted. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I do thank you for this, this story of Stephen. In many ways, we've just touched a little bit on it, God. But I'm so grateful that you gave us a story of an ordinary guy who, because he listened to you and was filled with the Spirit, <laughs> the church was catapulted. I know it didn't make sense to those early believers. Why would you allow this, God? But, but you did, and it was right. May you give each one of us a heart for you and a desire to walk with you and listen to you. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Would you stand with us this morning?
believer and give that person power and the ability to witness, share good news. If you're part of our fellowship today and and you don't know the Lord, you're not part of his family, we'd love to talk to you about that. If you're someone who knows Jesus, but you know, you'd love to have someone pray for you or with you. We'd love to do that, and we've got a prayer team that'll be up front here as you leave. So come on up. Let's encourage you. For anyone else, if you would like some help on the journey, you can fill out a connection card, which is front of you, and put it right in our connection box. You can give us a call or an email, and we'll help you on this journey. Part of Our worship is giving. You can give online or you can give in our offering boxes as you leave. We're so grateful for God's people and their generosity, especially during days like today, which are so difficult to try to discern, well, how to and what to do to make a difference in our world. Just want to encourage you again. So grateful for all the things that God's doing. And may God continue to encourage you and strengthen you this week. Go be salt. Go be light. Spend time with our Lord. You'll never regret it. Have a great week, my friends. See you later.